Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. The Filipino poet and labour organiser Carlos Bulasan, whose family immigrated to America in the Great Depression, entitled his autobiographic novel, America is in the Heart. Elaine Castillo's fine debut novel, America is Not the Heart, is a portrait of Filipino diaspora, specifically the migration of three generations of women to the not-so-picturesque part of the San Francisco Bay Area. Tender and funny, and marked by a kind of declamatory vernacular and a smattering of native Philippine languages, Castillo ranges across civil strife and torture, social inequity, mystery, romance and bisexuality. She joins Kiran Das in conversation. We hope you enjoy it. I don't know if you've been following her travels on um, Instagram, but it looks like she's been having a fabulous time in New Zealand. I mean, I, I think I genuinely am moving here. Like it's, it's actually happening. So shout out to anyone who knows like sponsorship visas because this is happening. <laughs> Elaine, the title America is Not the Heart is a sort of riff on the half memoir, half novel America is in the Heart by Carlos Bulison, who wrote It Was a Crime to be Filipino in mm. California. I mean, your novel is set in 1990s California, and I just wondered what was the connection between those two books and what was the hook for you with his book? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, you know, America is in the Heart by Carlos Belosan is it's a kind of seminal text of Filipino-American literature. So it's one of these kind of foundational texts that I didn't actually read in high school growing up. I didn't have a cool high school like that. But I, you know, when I came to it, and I think I'm, I, I, I'm not alone. A lot of Filipino-Americans and Filipino writers generally come to it. And it's some, sometimes some of the first times that you see the, this population just on, on the page. Certainly for me, it was the first time I ever saw people from the rural poor in the Philippines, and particularly the province that my mom comes from, is yeah. the same province that he describes in the book. There are, yeah. there are passages of, of really brutal poverty that he describes there that are very similar to the kind of br brutal poverty that my grandma, my mom, experienced. So, and the shock of recognition for me was immense. Also because I think at that point I had read like a fair amount of Asian American and Filipino American literature, but a lot of it was sort of centered on sort of middle class or upper middle class families and not as much on the kind of working poor that I felt that I also issued from, like came out of. But at the same time, and, and, and well, one thing that's wonderful is that that book is being reissued by Penguin Classics this spring, along with um, three other really seminal sort of works of Asian American literature by the work of Elder Rotor, who's actually the, a Filipino um, executive editor at Penguin Classics. And it's great. And I was very privileged enough to be able to write the new foreword yeah. for it, which is a huge, huge honor. And it's, it, it's just a, it's, it's, a, it's a real, in a way, a kind of restitution, really, to see someone like Bulosan as part of Penguin Classics, because it means that the kind, the, that when we call, when we say like these are our American classics, they actually look like the world that they're coming out of, you know, that they make, that that, that makes in a sen sense in a way. But I think at the same time, I, I'm also very critical of that book and critical of Bulosan's legacy. That The book, while I love it and deeply will always love it, it also contains, I think some of the most like apocalyptic misogyny mm. I've read in any book in a way that's not as, Discussed, I think, partially because of his importance to the community and his importance in that legacy, and I think it's equally important to also like tumble with your 
grandparents. Like, you also have to fight. Like, yeah. this is people who have, I mean, anyone who has a family knows that sometimes you have to fight with them. And I think that's sort of been my relationship with Boloson is one of deep, deep, deep kinship and love, but also antagonism. Yeah. It's very much hero story, right? But in the first chapter, it's actually a prologue, and the first line is, so you're a girl and you're poor, but you're light-skinned at least, so that will save you. Mm. Um, and that's an interesting segment because it's actually her aunt Paz, yeah. isn't it? Were you yeah. originally going to frame it from her perspective? And so, if so, when did hero come to the fore? Yeah, I, I was. I was originally going to write the book from either the, the perspective of the character who is the voice of the prologue, so a, a woman named Paz who's, who grows up, who's, I mean, ultimately very similar to my mom in terms of background, grows up with a, in, in rural poverty in the Philippines and eventually immigrates to the States as a, as a nurse and is a very kind of, I mean, uh, has a life that's really based really on survival and is very sort of taciturn and is really very sort of internal throughout the book. So the prologue is really the only time that you get any sort of sense of her internal life. And I, you know, I mean, this is, the, I think, the thing that if anyone tells you that writing an autobiographical sort of novel is easier, like, I'm the person to go to to disprove that theory. Which is, they, like, I thought I was going to write a, perspective, a book from the perspective of, like, uh, perspectives that I knew, which is to say, perspective like my mother's perspective, or, or even uh, Paz's daughter in the book, Ronnie, who's, like me, grew up in, you know, Mopitas, was born in California, grew up in the kind of very Filipino-heavy immigrant suburbs of the Bay Area. And I think I wrote something like 200 pages from both of those characters, and all of them were dead in the water. Like, no, had no sense of what their voice sounded like, despite, I, I mean, having, you would think I would know what they wanted to say. I had no idea. And I think, I think it was because I felt so much closer to those characters that because I grew up in the same class background, I was also defensive of them in a way that didn't allow me to be vulnerable on the page. Like, I, I think, the thing I, I think that I, have realized that when you're writing, all of your characters ultimately have blind spots. They will, they will all have blind spots. They're all wrong about themselves. I always write about people who are wrong about themselves. But it's the characters whose blind spots are, in a way, illuminating for the world that are the ones that are going to allow you to essentially write the book that you have to write. So, like, Paz's blind spot, their whole, like if I was writing from Paz, there's whole things that she just will not tell you. And that I couldn't fake writing that a character like this would tell you these things. So the world remained really closed. Whereas Hero, I started writing the book from essentially a woman. This character had existed in my head like years and years ago. It was like the seed of something. I knew I wanted to write about someone who had joined the New People's Army, which is the armed wing of the Communist Party in the Philippines. Because there was actually, I did have a cousin who was actually in the New People's Army. I had never met her. I still haven't ever met her. So the character isn't based on her at all. And she was actually uh, kind of higher up in the kind of sort of party organs of the Communist Party and in the New People's Army and does now live in exile in Europe. Just Hero um, is a bit more of a... Well, Hero's a loser. Or a, yeah, yeah, here, I, I knew I wanted to write about a loser, someone who was not historically important yeah. in any way. And when I, when I sort of... That character sort of appeared and then I sort of wrote her walking into the house in Milpitas, the world of the book kind of opened up. Even though at the time, I really, really did not want to write from Hero's character. Why not? Because of her class privilege, I think. Right. Because she came from the type of Filipino, the strata of Filipino class society that I felt I'd been sort of railing against my whole life, that I, you know, you know, had, had recognized very, very clearly sort of inter-oppression within that community. And I was like, I don't want to write about a rich girl, no. And 
But I think it was that feeling, that feeling of discomfort and suspicion that ultimately allowed me to be free because I didn't feel like I needed to protect her. I didn't feel like I needed to protect her from the reader. I felt like through her, I could criticize you know, and, and think about sort of class in the Philippine society in a way that was also going to implicate mm. the character I was writing about. Whereas when I was writing about Paz, it was very hard not to protect her and be like, well, she, n none of them have ever done anything wrong. And it was all, always rich people who were terrible. And like, that's not how things actually play out in life. So I think it was that sort of uh, realizing that the thing that was making me uneasy and uncomfortable was actually the thing that I needed to be writing from and writing through that actually allowed the book to get written. Well, in the end, that's a really interesting perspective to come from with Hero because she is from a privileged uh, middle-class mm. family mm. Uh, back in the Philippines. Um, you know, her family were friends with Marcos. Mm. Um, her father becomes the mayor. Yeah, but yeah. then because she becomes radicalised and joins the NPA, mm. um, they basically disown her, yeah. um, which creates a whole other dynamic in the narrative, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... I just wanted to ask you, what came to you first, though, the, the character of Hero or Pass or the narrative and world? I mean, both are so vivid. Yeah, I, thinking about it now, I think it probably was the characters mm. in that the, the, the first words I ever wrote of the book are the words that became the prologue. So that first line yeah. is really the first line, I think, that I wrote of the, the book entirely. So it was really, Pass's voice was very insistent and... And sort of that, that, that prologue kind of just unfurled, sort of. I, I think prior to that, I had, I had been writing and shelved, I always say, for the good of all humanity, a 600-page novel that will never see the light of day. <laughs> also, again, for the good of all humanity. Never say never. No, never, very much never. <laughs> uh, um, and so that was the, it was the first thing I'd written since then, and it just kind of poured out, and then, you know, through sort of trial and error of trying to continue to write from that, then Hero sort of showed up. So it was, I think it was ultimately, I think, probably character-driven, and then sort of the, the, the character's narrative arcs became clear mm -hmm. after that. So Hero basically has three different names. She's known mm. as Namang, mm. Geronima, and Hero. Mm. And there's a, there's a line in there which is something like, um, a name has a lifespan like anything else. Mm. So she's sort of had three quite distinct lives to go with those identities. I just wanted you to talk a bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, it's something that I think about, it's something that I think about a lot when I think about my parents and what my parents go through or, or, or went through just in terms of immigration and how much diaspora and the kind of patterns of diaspora create these real ruptures that ultimately sometimes end lives in a way, end lives within a life. Like sometimes I really look back, you know, it took years and years and years for my mom or my dad to ever st start talking about their past in the Philippines. Right. So for me, for all intents and purposes, my dad was a security guard, my mom was a nurse. They're both essentially sort of working class in the Philippines, in, in, in the States. And yet, you know, my father came from uh, relative, like, class privilege in the, st in, in, in the Philippines, which is why he was the one who introduced me to become a reader. He was the one who introduced books to me, which meant for me my love of books is also really intricately and inextricably connected to ultimately questions of, like, class and power, yeah. whereas my mom, you know, grew up and has a very shaky sort of relationship to sort of literacy and to in literacy in Tagalog and in English. And the sense that I got was really that both of them had had these completely fully formed lives in the Philippines that then just sort of stopped the minute that they came over. And they did have to and sort of cast things away like ballast. And those, I mean, th those kinds of ruptures were so, I think, stark and so, I, I think, 
shocking, I think, later when I realized that those ruptures had happened, and, and to realize that, oh, I, I'm actually, the father that I have is like, like this is like my dad in his third life. There are people yeah. who know him in a life that I have no access to, that, that, from a chapter that has been entirely closed. And of course, like, to some extent, that's not true because we do carry, I mean, ghosts of those past yeah. lives with us. So it's not like those things are away. I mean, he was definitely a person who was also haunted by the people that he had been. But there was a fundamental time, there's a, there, was a, there was a border between those lives and the life in which I knew him. And I think it, writing about people like that, writing about how sort of diaspora and immigration creates people like that, people who are multiple people in, in multiple lives in, in, in one life, I think that there was no other way I could write about that community but to write about that. There's even her uncle Paul, who of course in the Philippines was a very distinguished doctor, yeah. and now he's in the Bay Area, which of course the proximity mm. to Silicon Valley, he's mm. working um, what, as a security he's working as a security guard um, for at a computer, computer, chip, yeah. computer chip company, which is what my dad did. My dad was yeah. a surgeon in the Philippines, and a very well-respected mm. surgeon in the Philippines, an orthopedic surgeon, and then, you know, when he came to the when he came to the states. He worked as a security guard and worked as a security guard for the rest of his life and never practiced medicine again. Never practiced. Never again. practiced medicine. Wow. Again. Did he ever speak about that? Yes. I mean, I think. Well, yes and no. And my father was a very a fairly sort of quiet and um, philosophical person, and also my best friend in the world. Mm. Um, so he did. I, I I knew very well that it was um, a deep pain. That I, I mean, I always had the sense that my father. Wasn't, knew himself to be in exile, knew himself to be a person who was living in exile, accepted it, but ultimately was still, yes, it was, had a kind of exilic um, temperament. And so that sense of, 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 I think he still always identified as a surgeon. Yeah. Like people, but this is also how I noticed class in Filipino-American society. People who, there, could be, there were people in our town who were sort of more middle class or upper middle class who knew that my dad was yeah. a surgeon. So they still sort of addressed him as Dr. Castillo. Mm. They said, oh, Dr. Mm. Castillo, even though they knew he was a security guard. Whereas they also knew what background my mom had come from. And despite the fact that in my life, my mom was our breadwinner, they barely like, spared a look at her. Yeah. Because despite the fact that you know, she was the queen of our family, she was, it, was, it was through her labor that all of us were possible, you know, they knew what background she came from, so she doesn't exist. That reminds me of something in the book, actually, about um, how when there's a scene where Hero and her friend Jamie, they're out cruising at bars, yeah. and then in the alleyway, Jamie gets jumped and attacked, oh, and Hero kind of walks in as it's happening, mm -hmm. and um, she knows instinctively just from the sound yeah. that they've dislocated his shoulder mm. and she's just straight back in there, mm. no hesitation, and clicks it back into place. It's mm. sort of that world, that life, that previous life, it's still inside Comes rushing you. back. Yeah, yeah. It com comes rushing back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I do think that happens. Yeah. I, I, I do think, I mean, I did see it happen. I mean, obviously, certainly, like, with, with, with both of my parents, but with my father especially, there were moments, if, if, if I was sick or if something mm. had happened, sort of a, his doctor's knowledge would surge up. And I think that's why, to some extent, even in my life, I feel... I feel very sort of medical in my metaphors sometimes in a way that I think is normal, but I realize is not actually normal. So that's definitely a, a kind of resonance from, yeah. from, from them passed down. I wanted to talk a bit about trauma um, because mm -hmm. the book deals with pain and trauma um, in a really nuanced kind of way. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Hero has the kind of deeply rooted trauma inside the rejection from her family um, and 
being an undocumented immigrant, mm -hmm. but also there's the kind of um, trauma that you can see while she was captured uh, for two years. Mm -hmm. um, she was tortured mm -hmm. and they broke her thumbs as a form of really brutal torture. Mm -hmm. And it's visible, you know, you can see the struggles where she's trying to open a door mm -hmm. or even the pain of driving. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to, I wanted you to talk about the writing, the process of writing about trauma. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the thing I always say about trauma, I think probably have said it too many times, so if anyone's listened to a podcast before, sorry. But the thing that I do always say about trauma, and particularly sort of portrayals of trauma in art or in literature, is that the, the ones that I think I identify with are not, and, and, and really resonate with, are not the portrayals of trauma that are portraits, which is to say, like, one person has trauma, and everyone else is in kind of a handmaiden to that trauma, which is to say that like, something terrible has only ever happened to one person. That's just fundamentally not how I experienced how trauma radiated out in my family. It was really like, well, one person has gone through something truly terrible. Yes, yeah, so has everyone. So trauma was really, for me, it was a landscape. So thinking about how to write and how not to shy away from writing about, yes, political trauma, familial trauma, sort of domestic sort of violence and rupture, but also fundamentally not reducing people, and in particular women, and in particular women of color, to their trauma, which is to say to the worst things that ever happened to them. I think that's, I mean, that's really one of the number one ways to dehumanize a character is to reduce them to their oppressions. Like, I, I do think it's important to talk about it because, I mean, these, these are you know, part and parcel of our lives, of our history, so confronting them is, you know, also our task. But for me, it's just as important to also write about how she gets into, like, Japanese manga, or yeah. how she, you know, falls in love with, you know, another woman and kind of fucks it up for a long while until, yeah. sort of, spoiler alert, maybe getting there. So I think, you know, for me, for, for me, I think that that's how I, I, I really approach writing about, about, about trauma and violence, is, is making sure that we understand that these are things that are part of the texture of a life, that I don't want to run away from, and I don't want to look away from the violence that women, and in particular women of color, experience, but I also want to make sure that I'm writing, with, writing it with a sense of a fullness of a life. So that, you know, so that people are alive on the page and that they're not just essentially jukeboxes to create, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's like, I think as particularly as writers of color, you're also sometimes at the risk of producing essentially tragedy porn for a kind of comfortable readership for saying like, yeah. oh, well, things were so terrible in the Philippines and yeah. everything is so off, like everything that happened is so awful. And I just think that dynamic is, I mean, for one thing, just icky. And also, you know, just fundamentally, it impoverishes our readership. I mean, it impoverishes us as readers, and it impoverishes our stories to approach stories like that, you know, to, 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 to not see people in their, in their wholeness. And as a writer of colour, you don't want the responsibility of oh, yeah, trying God. to educate people about oh, yeah, what no. is acceptable or yes. appropriate. Um, well, yeah. that's it. Well, but, but, I, I, but I do think that burden often is put on the shoulders of writers mm. of colour, that a lot, you know, I do think about how... A lot of the times, the way we read writers of color, immigrant writers, or writers from demographic minorities generally, this is also queer writers and queer writers of color, um, is that we, we, we sort of instrumentalize them and their art, which is to say, like, I want to read this book because I want to learn about the Philippines, yeah. which is great. I mean, I read loads, I read loads of white books by white authors to learn about whiteness, and yet we don't talk about whiteness. We don't talk about white people's books as 
teaching us something about white identity, which is to say we go to writers of color to like learn the specific, but we go to white writers to just feel the universal, which is to say when we read books that are about sort of pain and anger and womanhood, but they're written by white writers, we're just learning about pain and anger and womanhood. But if we're reading a book by a Filipina writer, we're learning about Filipina pain, mm -hmm. Filipina anger, Filipina womanhood. And I think that distinction does us a disservice. It, it, it's, yeah. it, it's not good enough, ultimately, for our, for our young readers and young writers of color. I think we, who deserve to be read, I think not in, for the kind of ethnographic value that yeah. they give, like, but for their art. I wanted to talk a bit about language in the book because the language is so striking and the use of language is just remarkable, really. Um, it's written in English, but then there are these flashes of about three other different Filipina yeah. um, dialects yeah. and significantly they're not translated. And I just, I think that's really important. But what, what do you think about the importance and significance yeah. of leaving those words untranslated um, for readers? I mean, I have to say, being here, I've been really heartened by how much Treo Māori is not translated, and I, I find it incredibly radical and moving. Like, I, when I was at the Pofiri, I think, um, yeah. yesterday, was it already yesterday? It feels like an eternity. <laughs> Um, I, I think I was actually just moved to tears by it. And, 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 it, and that's not the first time I, I've gone. I mean, I've been in New Zealand now for a week and a half, and I'm encountering Treo Māori, like, constantly and constantly untranslated, and I find that deeply, deeply inspiring and galvanizing. I mean, for me, you know, I grew up, the town that I grew up in was always essentially majority minority. It was always like 60% yeah. sort of Filipino, Mexican, Vietnamese was sort of the kind of mix. And so like 60% of that sort of population always, you know, spoke a language other than English. So that for me was America. That was my American town. And I never had any sense that that wasn't an utterly central idea of America. You know, I never had any sense that that shouldn't be how we think of America and how we think of, you know, American languages and how, how America should sound. I mean, when, when I would watch, like, Baywatch or Beverly Hills 90210, that seemed like science fiction to me. <laughs> like, I did not <laughs> under... I, 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 I had no idea where that California was. Like, it, it was definitely yeah. not my California. Yeah. So I think for me, writing... writing you know, a book that's largely in English, but also talks about, you know, includes, you know, Tagalog and Pangasinan and Ilocano, yeah. which are all these three languages of the Philippines, is just about writing fiction that's commensurate to the American reality that I grew up in. And also not translating it because, you know, I, I don't think writers should be expected to assume that they're, well, for one thing, that their readers need to be handheld because readers are smarter than that. Yeah. But that Absolutely. also that their readers are, I mean, the, the, the kind of dog whistle thing here is that people are like, well, you should just assume that your reader is white and then needs to be spoon fed yeah. this information. And I do think that deforms the writing because then it assumes this gaze that I, I don't think about. You know, for me, I'm writing about and to a particular community and I'm not writing in a, essentially to create a kind of what, like neo-colonial diorama mm -hmm. that then needs to be sort of translated for greater sort of consumption. The, the thing, I think for all of us, for me as a reader, like, you know, people, George Eliot uses loads of languages that I didn't understand that I was just along for the <laughs> ride for because I love George Eliot. I love the mill on the floss. Yeah. So you have to trust also that readers know that the kind of pact of reading is about that sort of, that intimacy, that vulnerability about jumping in and being sort of Opened up, opened up in you in, in, in a world. And yeah, I, I think you have to trust that. I loved that authenticity, I really oh, did. And you. it takes me to um, setting, because I feel that setting was so important to the novel. It's set in um, Bay Area, um, Milpitas. Yes, that's it. My and, <laughs> 
it's it's not San Francisco that you would normally read about. It's mm -hmm. unglamorous. There's strip malls, you yeah. know. Um, it's very kind of normalised. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting, that departure for... Um, the usual kind of queer experience, yeah. you know, the urban kind of experience, go to the big city and experience your, yeah. and explore your sexuality. Yeah. It's, um, it's very different and it's more an exploration of the mundane and the daily yeah. kind of part. And I just wanted to ask you, was that a conscious thing? Uh, I mean, you grew up in the Bay Area, so... Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's definitely yeah. conscious. I mean, I grew up in that town. I grew up in Milpitas, so it's an hour south yeah. of San Francisco. It's a town, as I said, you know, that those are the demographics of the town. It's a town that also was always next to a landfill, so its, it's biggest claim to fame is that it smells like shit. So if you drive into the town, like, once you're driving over the hot, you'll smell it before you see the town, and you know you're in Milpitas. So, I mean, as you can imagine, it was not a very desirable place to live. Um, although now, thanks to, I guess, tech gentrification, like houses are going for a million dollars, so I don't know what's happening. <laughs> but so that, you know, that was a town, it was a very kind of unpretty and ultimately un sort of loved but by the people who lived in it um, town. And, you know, I think growing up as a like bi kid and also growing up with queer people in my family, you know, my godfather was bakla, which is a sort of, it's a Filipino sort of queer term, which is sort of difficult to translate. I mean, it's mainly a gay man, but he also identified sometimes as a woman and was also my godmother, so th th these kind of sort of non-binary, sort of non-Western queernesses were also very alive in, in that community and in my family. And I think for me it was important to, yeah, to write about queer suburban life, yeah. I think, in particular. Not because, you know, you know there, I mean, yes, the, like the, I think the majority of the, the queer sort of literature I, le I read growing up was, was mainly urban or San Francisco-based or New York-based and was about this kind of like... I have to like leave the like rural town or the suburban in order to be like fully actualized as like a queer person in like the city. And I like that narrative. To be honest, is also my narrative. Like I don't, I, I'm not shitting on that narrative because I, I recognize its truth um, and its meaning. But I also know that it's not the only queer narrative. I mean, only queer narrative. Period. But certainly not even the only one for me. And I think it's important for me to also just write about. I think women at intersections, you know, to, to write about a woman who is queer, but who's also undocumented and is, so is living in, you know, in the States really by, by virtue of and, and due to the kindness of people in her family, which means like she can't just fuck off to San Francisco and like rent a place because so much of her survival in her life is based on the kind of protection that she has within this very sort of close-knit Filipino community and, you know, family. So how do you navigate sort of being within that community, staying within that community, you know, confronting sort of the particular queernesses of that community, also not shying away from talking about the particular homophobias that are in that community that are no different from homophobias elsewhere. But then also thinking, like, how, how do, you know, queer women and queer people generally make a life everywhere i think and, and how 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 do you how do you build a life when you're 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 standing at all of those vectors i think is what i think about that kind of um dailiness too is reflected in just moments like where she needs to go to the hospital to um yeah. someone's just passed away right yeah. and yeah. so she wants someone says i'll just drive there yeah. um but of course she can't because she's an undocumented immigrant yeah. she gets pulled over yeah, yeah, yeah. she's always um i guess she's risk averse right sure, yeah, she's yeah, always yeah. kind of clocking sure, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. if she's yeah. going to get caught um i think yeah. i think that banality so, the banality yeah. generally is very i think that's probably like the driving force in my art i think probably is like 
writing about the banality, it goes back to how I write about, I think, trauma also, is yeah. to not, in a way, sensationalize or fetishize, but really get into the kind of textular, granular dailiness of what it is to live, mm. like, as an undocumented woman, which is to say, to, like, drive around and realize that if you're pulled over and you, dri you have to show your driver's license, you are at risk for essentially being yeah. deported. Or, you know, the kind of dailiness of then sort of, like, meeting someone and, like, trying to be cute for a date. Like, you know, those kinds of, sort of, th those sort of, like, little banal daily life moments are the things that build a life. So I think those are the things that, you know, I really hearken to um, and, 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 and go back to to make sure that I'm, I'm writing, you know, characters in their fullness. So there's that line where she says dailiness she hadn't taken for granted, she'd yeah. taken it for eternal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So striking. Oh, thank you. Um, there's also the line in the novel where they talk about, um, I think it's hero, that tragedy can be um, mm. unsensational. Yeah. And um, that is very much reflected in the book, isn't it? I think that's a. I think that's also probably um, when it's one of those secret. Oh, my entire process is revealed mm. in this sentence. Type of lines that sometimes shows up in your novels. Yeah, I, I, I do find that really important to write about tragedy unsensationally, which is to say to write not to not shy away from writing about tragedy. I mean, I'm not a you know Pollyanna in that way. I do I do I, I just know that tragedy is a very a bare fact of life also. But to write about it, I think that this particular part is talking about there's like a whole myth of like this like Filipina ghost. And so a lot of people think like, oh is this Filipina ghost maybe she was like abused by colonialists or was like abandoned by like a white American GI or something, you know, and like mm -hmm. this kind of like sensationalist way of sort of projecting or thinking about what, what, what might have been the backstory for this woman's trauma that ultimately kind of re-traumatizes her by kind of like hyper, like fetishizing her victimhood in a sense. Yeah. And then people kind of realize, no, she was just a medical student and then she just like died accidentally, yeah. which is a tragedy. But it's not the tragedy with a capital T that people then try to fetishize and then ultimately sort of remove the personhood of a person through, through, through thinking about story that way. So I think for me, yeah, it goes back to banality and, <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, and writing unsensationally, I think. And Hero is such an interesting character. She's really complex because she's actually not sentimental, really, no. and she's not romantic. Um, no. She doesn't hold truck with people who are invested in the heart. Yeah. To her, the heart is something that can be wrapped in yeah. foil yeah. street food or yeah. something that can be fixed. People eat hearts, so <laughs> tasty. And, um, but men have really under Underestimated that about her in the mm. past, haven't they? Yes, um, yes. I mean, she definitely. Yeah, I mean, she definitely has a very sort of free, and open, and diverse sexual life, mm. and 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 I, I think I wanted to write about a woman who, I mean, uh, you know, a queer woman, in particular, I think a bi woman, um, who had these experiences and and who approached her sexuality in a way, particularly given the class background that she's in and the kinds of ideas about feminine and Filipino propriety that she would have grown up with, which is also kind of, I, I think sometimes it's also a kind of internalized colonial sense that you have to be this like perfect, I mean, the cli the most cliche kind of, ask, um, like I think idea of Filipino femininity is the Maria Clara. I don't, are there Filipinos here who know, maybe know Maria Clara from Jose Rizal's fucking, I mean, this, the Maria Clara has done us dirty, guys. <laughs> like, it's, it's this idea of sort of Filipina, sort of feminine. It's actually mestiza Filipina femininity. So she's very light-skinned, which is to say she's very beautiful, because that's the, the, these two things are basically synonyms for each other in kind of Filipino colorist society. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, she, she does have essentially a very sort of tragic narrative. I think there are feminist writers that are trying to recuperate her, but there is a kind of sense of her being sort of 
proper a, a proper woman who uh, is then sort of like, I think repeatedly victimized, and that kind of idea of propriety and of of propriety sort of being you know how how you have to exist as as a woman not just within the patriarchy of your own society but as someone who's trying to survive in like sort of the larger colonial society that's also imposing certain western ideals of you know femininity and propriety as a kind of buffer against being sort of named as sort of like savage or sort of uncivilized the the kind of collusion between civilization and and femininity and pri- propriety is something that's a character like hero and certainly women that i knew really inherited and and still i think live with you know i still i still you know bleaching creams are still very common i yeah. still i still grow up with that that sense of you know being morena or being sort of like mm. browner skinned you know and 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 feeling that sort of mm, like just that slight disappointment on the part of family members that you know you could just like be a little bit lighter or a lot um so that that sense of like femininity and sexuality being bound up in pushing against these ideas of of what a woman has to be um just to be worthy i think is part of what i write about for sure Elaine, were you going to read a little bit? Oh, yeah, I can because read a little bit. Because I feel like bit. that piece that maybe you're going to read might work in beautifully. With oh, that. okay, sure. Uh, well, probably. Oh, would yeah. you like to hear a reading? I mean, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, I think probably you don't. Sometimes I have to give a little bit of like a spiel to, to, to slide people in, but we've been talking long enough that I think probably you don't need to know anything, just. Uh, this is just told from the perspective of Hero, so who's the main character, the NPA member who's now, or who is living in exile in, in, the, in California. Hero had never been a romantic. She'd never been someone who fantasized about dream lovers, marriage, dramatic heartbreak. Often people, men mostly, interpreted her diffidence for coquetry, told themselves there was a smoldering sexuality beneath all that silence. They were mistaken. She neither smoldered nor was coy. She wanted to fuck and be fucked, that was it. She liked silence, it wasn't a pose. She was never good at small talk. Sex, she understood. That hunger had been in her from the beginning, from the very first self-administered orgasm. It was part of the feeling she always had of standing outside of everything. But that wasn't all that bad either. The way sex exacerbated how she already felt was grounding. It hooked her in place, let her know where she was, chased away all the muddled, murky feelings she had about her desires, about whether or not she could really become a surgeon, about the life that Teresa was offering her in the NPA, about being a devera. Hiro had sex for the first time at 15 with a boy in her class. She'd sucked him off and he'd stuck his fingers into her, dry, without ceremony, nails, too long. He came, she didn't. That didn't deter her. The next time she had sex, also with a boy, she discovered she couldn't come just with his dick inside her, despite liking the way it made her feel. She showed him where her clit was after he came. This second boy reacted like it was both a source of personal dishonor, then amusement, then finally his unbelievable good fortune, the way she was so straightforward about her desires and how to answer him, answer them. They kept having sex for over two years. People thought of him as her high school sweetheart, Francisco. It was the longest she'd ever been with one person. She stopped having relationships entirely after Francisco and stuck to sex. She had sex with a girl for the first time at college in the USD dorms, a law student who had a fiance. But he was studying abroad in America and the girl was having doubts. It wasn't cheating if it was a girl, went the law student's logic. Hero liked eating the girl's pussy and would have liked having hers eaten in return, but the girl never offered. But that alone wasn't the answer she'd been looking for. If anything, it made her realize that she wasn't looking for an answer, that sex hadn't been a question at all, 
but a sentence, lone and complete. They'd broken both her thumbs in the camp right at the base near the joints. That was where it was hardest to heal. Thumb function made up around half of the entire function of the hand. It was a Rolando fracture, not a Bennett's fracture, graver. The base of the metatarsal fractured in two places. Nerves fucked, only salvageable with surgery, which wasn't gonna happen anytime soon. Maybe the guards had medical training and did it on purpose. She'd known the minute it happened. It helped to know what kind of fracture it was, to think about the morning she'd learned about that term, what the lecture hall looked like, how attentively she'd written down the definitions in her notepad, how diligently she'd studied the pages later. When she was younger, her uncle Paul said that hand trauma posed the most difficulty for an orthopedic surgeon. To return a hand to what it had been pre-injury was nearly impossible considering the complexity of the hand, the network of tendons, nerves, bones, muscles, veins, soft tissues, and the fine, tiny movements and the intricate mechanics that made them possible. Hands were more complicated than the people attached to them. A broken heart, that's easy to fix, Paul used to remark. Hearts heal. They even improve. Hands are never the same. After it had been confirmed that the prisoner who spoke Ilocano and said she was only a country doctor was indeed a Devera daughter and therefore closely related to a family friend and relative through marriage of Ferdinand Marcos, she'd been immediately released from the camp two years after she'd been taken. Amends were made to the Devera family for the oversight. The year Hiro left for California, her father, Hamin, won a landslide election as mayor of Bantay, close enough to Vigan that he and her mother, Concepcion, wouldn't even have to move. Though, of course, they did. New beginnings. Hiro had never seen the house in Bantay. Soli said it was not that much longer than the, than the Devera house, but more modern. When she'd first decided to become a surgeon, Uncle Paul gave her a book that he'd read in, when he was in medical school, written by some French philosopher she'd never heard of the phenomenology of perception. She'd asked what it was about. Paul said, you have to read it to find out. But it's a good book for orthopedic surgeons. Read the part about phantom limbs. It had been too difficult to understand when he gave it to her, but by the time she got to college, she was ready for it. She read it again and again until its spine broke and she had to tape it together. She lost it around the time she dropped out of medical school, joined up with Teresa and Eddie and everyone, and it didn't matter anyway. She wasn't gonna be a surgeon after all, at least not one that needed French philosophy. That was what she told herself, but there were lines she still thought about years later in the room she shared with Teresa and the others, lying on a booty mat on the floor, still smelling faintly of the sampalok leaves used to bleach the straw. The part about phantom limbs, the part about sexuality, the part about no one being saved, the part about no one being totally lost. Thank you. Thank you for that beautiful passage. Mm, thank you. Um, it's really interesting though, isn't it? Because Hero knows that lust is one of the most time-honoured antidotes to sorrow. <laughs> But her sorrows are either superficial or mm -hmm. so deeply rooted that it's yeah. neither here nor Sex there. isn't going to cut it, y'all. No. <laughs> so what is her relationship to sex then? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think I think I want. I did want to write about someone who was essentially promiscuous, or who who, who had you know a, a kind of wide and diverse sexual life as a, as, as a bi woman, uh, but wasn't necessarily sex positive, if that makes yeah. sense. So I didn't want. I I I, I think my, the, the 
depiction of sex was, I think this goes back to banality, just going back to wanting to depict, you know, the realities of, of a bi woman sort of, sort of journey in sexual life, but not necessarily, you know, also with the kind of vagaries and kind of, you know, disappointments and, and also very embodied physical realities of having sex with, you know, people of different genders. And I think also, I think Hero is a kind of counterpart in a way to the other queer and the other bi woman in the, in the story, the, the woman that she eventually, <laughs> spoiler alert, falls in love with or, or, or has a relationship with, Roslyn, who has a very different, different yeah. sort of background as a bi woman, a very different sort of, back, uh, sort of relationship to her sexuality because she's grown up almost entirely within, in the States, in, in, in this community, and hasn't had the same sort of hasn't felt the same sort of personal freedoms that meant that she could have like sex with anyone that she wanted because she's so known in her community. So she doesn't also feel that she you know, has a space to explore her, her, her sexuality. And I think that was really important for me also to write, really I think also to write about queer people who like don't have like huge like the huge rolodex of sex lives. Yeah. I think it's in particular bi women because I certainly feel as a bi woman that and I mean, I don't feel it anymore because I've like gotten older and just have stopped giving a fuck. But I think, you know, I, I definitely in my 20s, I really definitely felt like I had to like give people like my calling, like my whole Rolodex of like, here are all my past, yeah. you know, things to be a kind of valid by yeah. a woman. Because of course, like the gender of the person that you're currently with ends up essentially defining your sexuality. So if your partner is like a cis woman, then suddenly you're not actually bi, you're lesbian. Or, you know, uh, if your partner's a cis man, then yeah, you were bi for like a period. It was like a phase but now you're like a true like hetero person so I think for me it was you know I think important to write about someone who was bi and who did not necessarily have the experience to back that up you know but who, who, who just had to know it had who had to own it and who had to sort of live in her sexuality in in you know in in ways that we, we don't always see and to, to, to see these two types of experiences is also just all part of the kind of you know our larger sort of tapestry of you know queer queer experience so you've mentioned it now so I can ask you about <laughs> it um, Rosalind the the other woman and um, hero they the dynamic between them is really interesting because, of oh, course, you. you know, Hero's promiscuous or she's been around the yeah. block and she's got a lot of experience, yeah. whereas Rosalind is very tentative. But it's so slow burning, the <sighs> way they come together because Rosalind's pursuing her yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and Hero kind of doesn't want a bar of it. She's sort of no. resistant because she senses that Rosalind is concerned with matters of the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh-oh. <laughs> Like alarm bells. <laughs> <laughs> but what were you interested um, in exploring there with that dynamic with them? I think probably the thing I'm probably interested in exploring is the thing I'm, I'm interested in my life and interested always in, in exploring is the, the terror and also absolute defining and saving uh, thing that is intimacy. You know, how, how, how do you be intimate with someone? How, how, how do you fall in love with someone? How do you be known and let yourself be known. There's nothing scarier than that. And a hero certainly knows that. Hero's fucking terrified of it and runs from it, th I mean, throughout most of the book. I think, that's, that, I think that's probably part of their dynamic also, is that Hero is someone who's had loads of experience, but actually is very quite internal, 
taciturn and sort of you know reserved in a way. Whereas Rosalind has almost no experience and yet is very kind of talks a big game essentially is what Ros you know Rosalind is the type of person who is very theatrical and talks to is in a sense conceal her own absolute sort of terror at not knowing. I mean she doesn't really know how to have sex with a woman, mm -hmm. which it becomes blindingly apparent the way at some point. About <laughs> but I mean you know I think a lot of us have also like experienced that for one and you know I think I think. I think I, I, I did want to write about, you know, yeah, I, I, like, but basically, like, how, how do you fall in love with someone? How do you let yourself be loved? Mm. How do you let yourself be known in all your, in all your dailiness, in all your banality, and through, yes, also all your trauma? How do you, and I, I know I'm also wary, I am wary of, like, the kind of cliche, like, oh, had trauma, but, like, through the power of healing love or sex, you know, was then sort of, trans, you know, that kind of transformative narrative. So obviously the simplicity of that is one to be, wary of, but I also don't think that its sort of trajectory is false in a sense. Like I do think love is saving. I don't think, I don't, I don't think that it, it destroys all the demons in your life, definitely not. But I do, I, I do, it, it, is, it is important for me to write about love and to write about romance also because I don't think, I don't think we give it the kind of political valence that it deserves. Especially like romance and the romantic genre. Like I think a lot of times like the, the kind of genres that we like intellectualize and like appropriate to be sort of elevated in literary sort of culture are like sci-fi sort of genre, thriller, like, uh, like fantasy genres that I mean are large, I mean are tend to be sort of gendered as like male, even though obviously like loads of you know, people of all genders and, and, and women in particular are very much in the sci-fi world. I am a big Trekkie. Um, but I think for me, I think I'm interested in thinking about how romance is a, a site for some of our most really kind of valuable, urgent kind of uh, political sort of awakenings and also sort of political, you know, the, what it is to like love somebody and to, 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 to to be in community, and, to, and and not just sexual love or romantic love, although that is the, the the one that I'm really thinking about. But also, yes, familial love, communal love. How do you how how do you come to to bear witness to a person, you know, through the things that they've gone through, which which is also about what what love is about, what what intimacy is about, and then also like the kind of excruciating like feeling, but also I think in the end, incredible relief ultimately of then also allowing yourself to be born witness to, like having someone say like, I see you, like I, I see you and I love you, like that to me, I, there's nothing in my life that's sort of demolished me more than that. And I know that for sure. So I think, I, you know, when you write about it, I, 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 I know that the politics in that are, are, are ones that define our lives. We've talked a little bit mm -hmm. about Hero being kind of unsentimental, <laughs> but the book is so sensory. Mm -hmm. um, the senses, um, you know, the descriptions of food, the, the plates of barbecued pork, the pancit, the adobo, the scents, memories that are triggered for her mm -hmm. by smelling certain fragrances like tobacco or yasetis, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, the smell of onions. Um, that sensory experience is so... Her senses are alive, aren't mm, they? Yeah, She's yeah, so... Yeah. Wasn't there something about her skin feeling vibration, noise? Oh, yes, yeah, like it was an ear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, well, <laughs> I don't think I realized I wrote about food as much as I did oh, until made me after so it came out. <laughs> Everyone told me this. Everyone was like, oh, so like, it made me super hungry. You yeah. wrote about food on every page. And I was like, what? Yeah. I had no sense of that. I really actually felt like I didn't write about food enough and that there were loads of regional <laughs> foods I had left out. And I really felt like I had failed on all accounts to write about food. And then what's funny is I asked Filipinos, I asked Filipino readers, I was like, did I write about food a lot in the book? <laughs> and like, they were all like, no, it was like a normal amount. Yeah. Like a normal <laughs> amount for like the level at which this community thinks about food. They were like, yeah, every other page is about right. So for me, I really didn't have a sense that I was like writing about food or I guess thinking about food a lot, except if I actually took a look at like my own self and life, I would realize that yes, my entire life is structured around it. Um, but writing about the senses, I think this goes back to the idea of writing the textural and the granular, to writing about people who, like, to writing about embodied characters, to writing about, yeah, how people smell or stink or feel mm. or how, how, how things sound, like writing about music, writing loads and loads around, about, yeah. like, nine, you know, 90s West Coast, West Coast hip-hop at that time yeah. was hugely important for me. Because if you want to make that world come alive, then I think the senses, just in the terms of a craft way, the senses are the way to get through it. Because certainly for me, if, there's, if, like, if I smell like, a, like the cologne that my dad wore, like, through, you know, throughout my childhood, yeah. or if I hear, like, literally any, like, if I hear a far side track from a certain era, mm. I, there are, like, I, if you play Far Side's running in front of me, like, I am in floods of tears without fail. Mm -hmm. Like, no matter where I am. This has happened in pubs. This, is ha this happens at home. It's actually, like, dangerous. Like, I actually should pro probably wear a sign. So, like, just, like, <laughs> please don't play this song around her unless you want to deal with, like, hours of crying. There's so much music in the book, and I actually feel like music is one of the first insights we really get oh, into yeah. Hero sure, yeah, as right. having a unique personality. She listens to these kind of mixtapes that she's taped off the radio. And yeah, it's all yeah, this yeah. kind of post-punk and new wave, like Ultravox and New Order. And um, I love the line from Rosalind where she says she only listens to music about white people having feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is, it's one of the few times I've given a character a line that I, I do actually daily say in my life. I do actually sometimes go to movies. I'm like, it's a movie about white people having feelings. So that's a genre. I mean, it's a very important genre that I do think deserves more like attenuated criticism. Yeah, but it's a, and you know, like critique and film critique. I think it's a really important genre, but it is a genre. Uh, yeah, well, because I think around the era that Hero is in the Philippines, what I learned later is that there is there was this radio station that was essentially really like specializing in and playing and broadcasting a lot of post-punk, like new romantic stuff. So stuff that I didn't actually really grow up listening to at all. So I like was introduced to like Talk Talk and Ultravox and like all of these like yeah, these 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 really this amazing music. I went to make a Spotify playlist of it all, but there's already one there. there I did so make a Spotify playlist for the book. Spotify. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thank thank you. you all for coming to this Auckland Writers Festival session and thank you Elaine for all your wonderful insights. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz.